Hello, everyone. Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Emma Metter, and I am joined today by Steve Saunier. And if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today, I am excited to welcome Owen Parker to our podcast. Owen is the current program manager for the Office of Medical Cannabidiol at the Iowa Department of Public Health. Owen is also a 2015 graduate from the college where he earned his MPH in occupational and environmental health. Welcome to the show, Owen. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Steve, for having me. As an alumni of CPH, it's an incredible opportunity to be here. Yeah, I love what you all do with the podcast, and I hope you've all been faring uh, as well as you're able to this year. So to start off, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background in this area? Was there a specific pathway that generated your interest in medical cannabidiol? Certainly. So, I mean, sir, anyone in this industry, you know, it's always, it's not always a linear path, but it certainly did begin, you know, as a graduate student at the U of I. As you mentioned, I studied occupational environmental health as kind of my subtract. And uh, I really liked the flexibility that that degree provided. Um, I really loved, I uh, personally enjoyed a lot of the policy and toxicology courses that I was able to take, you know, separate from the core curriculum, obviously. Uh, but it was, you know, in that degree, there were certainly some issues that stood out to me, you know, being where I'm at now. At that time, you know, I'm sure a lot of it still is that way. There's a lot about social determinants of health, uh, harm reduction, you know, addiction was a big topic for us always. You know, I, I certainly couldn't help but realize there was obvious disparities and public health issues that were created uh, by the war on drugs and mass incarceration at that time. I had just kind of developed some questions, you know, that just started to develop overall, whether it was the scheduling regime um, you know, which, you know, there's really wasn't a lot of science that was put into setting it up, yet there's a great deal of science that's required uh, to alter that scheduling at all. You know, is cannabis more of a, a mental health addiction, public health issue, you know, as compared to a criminal issue, you know, as it currently is. Also at that time, you know, this was 2013, 2015, I was really interested in some of the data that was coming out from other states that were testing, tracking, regulating, and taxing cannabis, you know, whether it was uh, medical or adult use. And that was really kind of, you know, the industry has, you know, evolved quite a bit, you know, in that, you know, seven, eight year time period. Um, but that was really when a lot of states were implementing these programs through largely ballot initiatives, and they were being regulated by the departments of health. So I just thought that that was kind of interesting. You know, I'm like, well, you know, I have a, this public health background. This is how states are doing this. I um, mean, before I even had an opportunity uh, to take part in the industry, I certainly couldn't help but see an obvious opportunity for public health professionals. That's a great overview into it, too. And I'd love the tying in of your degree and saying, you know, this isn't exactly the path that you come into within this field, yeah. particularly. You know, after graduation, you know, I actually had the opportunity to be in L.A. And I actually, with a couple other MPH grads, uh, we founded a startup company at that time, you know, using some of that public health knowledge uh, that provided but it was counseling and nicotine replacement for smoking cessation. You know, and that technology was ultimately acquired by UCLA in early 2016. That left me with a decision that I had to make. Uh, was I going to stay in Los Angeles, you know, where I was going to make my way back home and look for something else? And just to kind of talk about how those, some of those other states uh, were implementing those programs, this was right at the time when uh, Prop 64, which was the legalization initiative in California, was being heavily discussed. And uh, considering the immaturity of the industry at that time and what was coming in terms of regulations, I just kind of continued to see that Venn diagram. 
Uh, and it was about that time that I just thought, you know, well, you know, maybe the industry is looking for people and professionals, you know, that have this type of background. And uh, that's what kind of led me to um, take a position in the private industry with a startup who was a multi-state operator. You know, that's kind of industry speak for private entity that has licenses in multiple states. Um, so obviously those states have, you know, different ways that they do things. And while I started kind of in dispensary operations uh, with that company, I worked uh, in corporate for my, last, for my last 18 months in different aspects. And uh, 2018, I started their program, wanted to come back and help out. And I suppose, you know, you can kind of see how a career in this kind of zigs and zags, uh, but that's really kind of how I ended up here. With the career zigging and zagging, was there something that came out to you and said, you know, I really want to go back to Iowa and help them figure out this really new field that's evolving, especially with your background from the public health side of things? At that point, it was, you know, again, it's just kind of one of those things where things kind of line up. And when I got into the industry, that was really when a lot of states started to proliferate their programs. You know, it went from, you know, I think it was 2016 that year, you know, there was five or eight states that came online. And to be honest, I was shocked to see that Iowa uh, passed the program. Um, and just, I really thought, you know, being a, a hometown kid, having some of this, uh, you know, some of this knowledge or quote unquote expertise, you know, that I, I just kind of assumed a lot of people in Iowa, you know, weren't likely to have. I kind of wanted to come back and, you know, see what I could do. And actually that session, I, I worked with a small lobby group and that was how I met some of the IDPH personnel and kind of, you know, was like, Hey, I have this background, you know, you're probably looking for FTEs to do this. You know, I wonder if there's any any way that I could help. And that's kind of, you know, how I got here. You know, really, it's just it's just kind of, you know, sometimes you have to go to a different place, you know, to get that to get that expertise, to maybe applicable to somewhere else down the line. And that's really kind of how I that's how I got here. Just wanting to bring that knowledge back to Iowa. And what does that translate that expertise look like in your day to day interactions at the Office of Medical Cannabidol? Does that look very comprehensive when you're coming at it from a public health standpoint? Is it coming with the startup side of things, the knowledge that you've gained there? What does yeah. that interplay look like? The startup stuff I like to think was very valuable. Uh, when we were talking about starting an agency from zero, you know, that, that's really what we're doing. You know, it's, it, you take a piece of paper that's, you know, passed through the legislature and you have to turn it into a program. You know, whether that's the rules, that's your compliance and inspection processes, uh, all those, you know, educating the public and the patients and all the stakeholders and, you know, industry stakeholders and the people and the groups that are affected by a program like this. Uh, you know, the, the public health background, you know, kind of obviously allowed me to, you know, understand how those things needed to be implemented. Uh, but then I really think the startup background really came into play uh, with just starting it from zero. You know, whether that's staffing, you know, that's just how you go about thinking and developing the ways that you're going to go about it. Uh, it really just kind of ended up being a great uh, merger of both my background, you know, and some of the experience I'd gotten out in the startup community. So then with your work in our state, who have you found to be the primary users of medical cannabidol? And what are some reasons why they utilize this? Sure. I think, I mean, one of the things I think it's really important to understand is that all of these are state-based medical cannabis programs. And, you know, usually they are very different in how they operate, depending on, you know, how the state is deciding to implement those. In a program like ours, you know, we are fairly, you know, restrictive in terms of the forms, you know, and the potencies and who can gain access to those products. 
So really, it's only accessible to those with those truly debilitating conditions and only allows downstream products manufactured from a cannabis concentrate. So that would be, you know, vaporizers, uh, capsules and tablets, uh, tinctures, topicals. You know, we don't we don't allow flour you know, or anything or edibles. You know, some of those things a lot of people associate with more of an adult use program. So really one of the, the people that we've seen enroll in our program, but of older individuals. So one of our, our program, the average age of our, you know, we have almost 5,000 patients at this point. The average age is 53 years old. We've seen in the industry and those in the know are aware that that's really the fastest expanding uh, demographic of new cannabis users. And a lot of these people, you know, they're not, and then, th- and then I think a lot of people think that they're, you know, they're, oh, they're old, they're hippies that are coming back to cannabis. And that's not the case either. Uh, these are people who have never tried cannabis um, and they're, you know, they're really, you know, using it as an alternative to maybe some of the things uh, that they're on. So in terms of a demographic, that's really, you know, what we've seen, you know, maybe the average age is 53, but we actually have had patients in our program ranging from ages two to 102. Um, so we have a, you know, a pretty wide range, you know, of patients that partake. Uh, but then in terms of what patients take it for, uh, we've seen right around 70% of our patient population is certified for a chronic pain condition. And, you know, that, that might seem high, uh, but it's actually pretty uh, right in line with a lot of the other medical cannabis programs and the percentages that they see in terms of uh, people who are approved for what condition. We're really, you know, hoping to conduct, you know, an observational study, you know, to understand, you know, more about the patient population, you know, what they're using these products for, how they're using them, you know, are they finding uh, benefit? But really at this point, you know, we're, we're seeing patients kind of take medical cannabis to alleviate some of those symptoms, you know, even though they're approved for a specific condition. Um, but also in relation to chronic pain, you know, this is something that's also discussed in the industry and uh, we need to do a study to really figure it out. Um, but we have a lot of anecdotal reports, both from patients and our licensees, that patients are using uh, medical cannabis as a, you know, a substitute for a lot of the other narcotics that they're on. Um, but ultimately, you know, that's a, it's largely anecdotal. Uh, and then our and then our other most certified conditions, which you know really are only around five to six percent of our population, are a post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and seizures. So again, you're you're talking more about not necessarily treating the maybe the condition itself, uh, but treating the symptoms that are associated uh, with that condition. When you're when you're talking about the research and the funding and everything along those lines, you know, I know the anecdotal evidence right it's out there. You see a lot of folks saying, I you know, I take this for my back pain. It's really helped. I can sleep better at night. All those things come up, but. You talked earlier about how that scientific backing is really necessary to change the current policies that are at play. One of the major Mm -hmm. pieces of legislation that was just passed in Iowa was House File 2589, and part of that looks into research funding. Has that seen any progression or anything along those lines coming out of it at this point? Sure. I mean, and that's kind of one of those, those other aspects that makes, you know, all these programs a little bit different. Um, so you'll see in a lot of big programs where they receive specific appropriations, whether to run their program, which subsidizes the cost, you know, of the licensees to run it or to the patients to enroll in it. Uh, I was a little bit different and that the, the legislature and our statute mandates that our program is solely uh, fee based. That means that we receive no taxpayer dollars 
uh, to implement our program. And, you know, basically everything in the program is funded uh, by patient and caregiver registration fees, and then the fees that our licensees pay each year. We do intend absolutely to conduct uh, an observational study, which, which would require some money. Uh, and really, we, we plan to do that, you know, once we're able to uh, refill uh, some of these uh, budget holes that have been created, unfortunately, um, by losing two dispensaries and a manufacturer earlier this year. The industry is in dire need uh, of science and, and real effectiveness data. When you're looking into that local experience and examining specifically the loss of those two dispensaries too, as well that you're commenting on, how is the Office of Medical Cannabis all responding to the health needs of Iowans right now during the pandemic? You mentioned the budget gaps and these other situations going on. Again, we've also seen with that recent house file that was passed that there's a change in the cap in the THC. There, there's mm-hmm. contention around those areas and how it can fill the needs for individuals who need this assistance with predominantly chronic care conditions. Where do you think this is headed towards? Uh, I mean, I can certainly, you know, initially I can kind of speak to what we've done uh, since the pandemic started, because I think that's, you know, that's really forced a lot of public health professionals to get pretty creative, you know, across the board. You know, I don't think it really matters uh, what your, maybe your specialty is in. You know, but we did see certainly a, a pretty steep drop off in registration at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we, you know, whether it's people not being able to renew their certification or people having trouble getting in to see a physician, um, that really caused a pretty steep drop off in our patient population, you know, largely due to factors like not being able to see your practitioner, um, you know, being, you know, compromised and not being able to being comfortable, you know, going out in public or going to a dispensary. Um, But we we certainly did identify some of those issues and provided dispensaries with a waiver to allow for curbside delivery. Um, That was a pretty consistent theme across the industry. You know, a lot of different businesses did that. Uh, We were no exception. You know, that really helped a lot to get patients out. Um, But also at that time, uh, the DOT was involved in our process. So it was, we always were aware that was a pretty significant barrier uh, that patients actually had to visit the DOT to get their card made. Uh, In most other programs, it's the department ourselves who would review that information and approve them. Uh, So we worked with the DOT to schedule specific uh, appointments with our patients to allow for, you know, the the manufacturer of those physical cards. Then also for patients who were renewing, uh, we worked with the DOT to actually mail the cards directly to the patient. So we were able to, both through allowing for socially distanced transactions allow for socially distanced and safer ways uh, for patients to get their card made, uh, but then also facilitating telemedicine, uh, both with our patients and our providers. There's nothing in our rules that forbid a patient to have that consultation through telemedicine. So those were some things that really you know, allowed our patient population since then uh, to rebound. Uh, but then also you mentioned House File 89, uh, that allowed for the department to manufacture those cards. Uh, so right, that really came, you know, right at a great time in the pandemic where we removed that DOT, we got those cards out to patients, and we've really seen um, quite a bit of improvements in the patient population from that aspect. Uh, we're pretty proud of what we did, you know, in response to the pandemic. To answer some of your other questions, you know, in regards to how the bill is actually going to help patients, you know, that's really going to be one of those things uh, that's ultimately going to be better served by an observational study. Uh, that would be conducted by, you know, the, the U of I or just, just in general to look at. I um, mean, you know, I can say um, that one of the things that potency, the loosening of the uh, 
you know, removal of the 3% cap and going to more of a uh, gram limit over 90 days, it did allow for the manufacture of higher THC vaporizer cartridges. Uh, and those who, who might know that uh, vaporizers do allow for much easier titration, uh, more fast on, fast off, uh, relief of some of those acute symptoms. Uh, we have had received anecdotal reports that those have been very beneficial to patients, especially where 70% of them are certified uh, for chronic pain. Um, but really, you know, it's going to take it's going to take an observational study and, and tracking this data over time with this new program to really see, you know, how it's going to benefit people. Because um, we're really only you know four or five months in. Uh, we have data on our website that you can kind of see the month-to-month tracking of uh, sales and patient adoption and physician adoption and all those things that kind of showed the health of the program. It's really going to take public health data gathering and uh, studies to really know uh, how this program is benefiting people over time. Our state has recently joined a novel cannabis regulators association that is formed from 19 states. Comparing Iowa's medical marijuana program to the other participants, what is the aim of joining? I've kind of spoken to how, you know, we really in the U.S., without any federal guiding framework and that federal illegality, uh, we, what we really end up with is this patchwork, fragmented regulatory schemes on a state-by-state basis. Um, so, Canada, you know, we've been kind of working with the informal aspect of the group for about the last year. Um, but I really, I would say that we're incredibly excited, you know, to be, for this opportunity and to be a founding and full voting member of CANRA and really can't understate its importance. It's really some of that fragmentation that I kind of spoke to is specifically due to the lack of existence of a group like this. Uh, so the goal of joining is to understand those lessons learned from other more experienced programs, you know, how they go about implementing those new policies. Uh, so hopefully the goal would be to never be in reinventing the wheel. And I think, you know, a theme in this industry, you know, as people who have watched it, you know, for the last handful of years or even the last decade, uh, is incremental change. And we've discussed how Iowa is no different. You know, we just had a bill passed that made changes, pretty, you know, pretty structural changes to our program. So the goal of this group is to create harmonization and standardization of policies between states so we can mitigate the, those variances in the patchwork and, you know, just kind of speak to the specifics, you know, whether this be product standards, you know, obviously very important. You know, how is, how do we, how do we label things? You know, how are things tested? Uh, how do we, how do we um, regulate industry advertising? What is, what is the correct actual structure uh, of a market? You know, this is all license-based, you know, what's, what's the best licensing scheme and structure uh, to vet and stand up those responsible operators. You know, but also one of the other things is, you know, I did kind of mention the war on drugs and some of those issues that have been caused uh, by prohibition. So we also want to make sure that programs foster social and economic equality and justice. So really, you know, in general, um, this is kind of, this would be kind of the, the group that would generally be in charge of regulating on a federal type of landscape. But without that, it's really left to state leaders and experienced regulators uh, to come together to share about how we can come to some level of consistency. So we're, we're really just trying to promote regulatory certainty for the industry uh, and all the industry participants. So it's, it's really valuable. You know, people that may not, maybe outside the industry may not quite understand that value. Uh, but previously, there was nothing but reinventing the wheel or just inventing the wheel because you really, there was no rule book for how to do this. Um, so this group kind of, you know, as 
this industry continues to gain traction and evolve, you know, a group like this just becomes more and more important. It's really exciting to hear and to be part of it. You know, it, it makes me think also back to your startup concepts and everything along those lines, that experience of, you know, you're really building from the ground up. And I'm thinking, is there something in particular that since you have been a part of, of this organization that you've gained? As opposed to anything, you know, really specific, you know, I would say really over the last year, um, you know, whether it's, you know, writing our rules um, that we had to write, you know, once the legislature, you know, changed our statute, you know, one of the first things we did was talk to that group. It's like, okay, hey, we got this thrown to us. How did you write rules around it, you know, when you did it, you know, as opposed to coming up with it, you know, on your own. A uh, big thing that's always evolving, you know, you're familiar with, you know, E-Valley and some of the issues, you know, around cannabis product testing. Um, so really, you know, we want to talk to those other states that, you know, say, hey, what, what do you look for in terms of contaminants? How do you, how do you test this given product form? Hey, do you have a validated method for how you go about testing this? Um, you know, and, and advertising is another big one. You know, it's really, you really kind of have to find that, you know, find that fine line. Um, you know, there's there's obviously the, the the parallels between, you know, the alcohol and tobacco industries and how uh, they went about regulating those. Um, but states are coming up with their own ways and lessons learned and, you know, licensees trying to skirt around them and maybe uh, do some things that, you know, um, bend those rules. And so it, it's, it's really, you know, across the board. Uh, all the, and I've, like I said, you know, kind of being a, you know, a younger professional, uh, that's been, you know, put in charge of standing something, you know, from the ground up. I've I've really leaned on uh, those experienced regulators for just about everything. You really think about some of these programs. California's initial, you know, medical cannabis program was started in 1996. You know, we have multiple, you know, programs, medical programs that were started, you know, in the early, uh, in the early knots, you know, in 2000 through 2005. And so there's people, there's regulators out there that have a lot of experience. Uh, and, and what's been done. And, you know, even though maybe I got a little bit of that experience, you know, uh, in California and being, you know, on the private side of the industry, it's, it's really, you, you have to lean on those people, you know, just as always that have that actual experience. And so, especially, you know, our program is really, you know, we just had our third birthday, you know, we're, we're basically brand new, we're still a baby. So we we're we're still setting up uh, just about everything. Uh, in the program and improving it and, you know, constantly doing quality improvement type of processes. Uh, so that's really uh, that group and those experienced regulators. I'm, I'm very grateful to them because that's really what allows us to, you know, make things, make things efficient and work well for the patients and people it's designed to work for. That's great to hear that you get to tap into that mentorship component and that's still there and a really excellent breadth of knowledge. When you're looking at this situation as it presents itself, right, coming into this new role and getting to explore these opportunities as a whole, is there an issue that you're specifically interested in, in solving through your work? You know, really, uh, you know, I've always thought that, you know, people in public health and with a public health degree, in some ways, you know, you have to be willing to be creative, you know, and I, and I really do think that I kind of recognized that early on. And that was one of the reasons that I found this industry, you know, a brand new emerging industry that's very public health focused, presents a lot of public health issues. Uh, and it is brand new. There is no rule book. Um, I thought it was really just the perfect application, you know, of that background. Um, but really to keep it relevant, you know, to this conversation and, you know, in some ways, you know, segue from that conversation about CANRA, 
is that I really feel like I am truly interested in solving the issues facing the cannabis industry and the public health issues that it presents as it, as we've talked about, continues to gain traction. It proliferates. Uh, it evolves at, you know, light speed. You know, we kind of always talk how this industry works in dog ears. Um, it's really surprising, you know, how quickly um, it changes from year to year. And, you know, and really, you know, it's, um, you know, each state's different, right? You know, each state and their legislatures have, you know, different opinions of this and how they want to handle it. You know, in terms of public opinion, um, you know, we have now 36 states that have medical cannabis in one form or another. Uh, we have 15 that allow adult use. And, you know, that would tell you that in some ways, you know, the genie is out of bottle. Genie is out of the bottle, uh, so to speak. So I, I really see my role and, you know, something I'd like to accomplish in this industry as being an active participant in ensuring that the industry is safe, uh, it's responsible, uh, it's, it's equitable, and it, it makes an effort to do some of the wrongs that have been created um, by the war on drugs and prohibition. And, you know, I really feel like five years into different versions of this career that I do take that seriously. I think that's, that's an issue I'd like to solve. Definitely. That sounds like a very important issue to work on and really exciting that you get to be able to work on that. And then just to ask a final question that we ask to everyone we interview, what is one thing you thought you knew, but were later wrong about? Yeah, that, that's a tough one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe as opposed to something, you know, that I've wrong about, I'll think of it as something that I always try to keep in mind, you know, especially being in this industry and, you know, especially in today's times, you know, it's very easy, you know, to be cynical and think that people, you know, have that fixed mindset, you know, are incapable of evolving their opinion or worldview. Um, I really think, you know, my five-year experience in the industry and three years in this role tells me that, you know, people and perceptions, you know, really do always evolve. You know, I, I like to believe that people ultimately respond uh, to objective dialogue and information uh, when it's presented to them properly. Uh, and again, it's objective and which that's always on us as individuals, you know, to figure out how to do that uh, and change that mindset. Because I know um, it's always easy, you know, to be cynical and I'm the same way. Um, but I think uh, that's kind of that's kind of something, you know, I, it's easy to be wrong about. Um, always try to improve. I think it's a really good point, too, because you need that optimism in founding something new and then starting something new. You know, you're saying, you know, this is the third birthday. This is all just incoming. And I, I can imagine, too, that it can seem very difficult when you know you've got situations like the pandemic on like you know some industry components leaving or other things happening along the way but then you get mm -hmm. to see the other buoyed amounts of legislation being passed nationwide you know we were talking about this in a prior email but there really is i think this big push for change mm -hmm. that is around the mm -hmm. corner and having that optimism and, and recognizing too right that folks can change their minds that legislation is is uh, reflective of that, you know, that constituents are reflective of that and attitudes too. So I think that's an excellent takeaway. When I got in this, you know, you really don't know where it's going to go. You know, I think it's been fascinating to see uh, the industry change and, you know, to be uh, where I'm at now, you know, and, and ultimately, you know, we, you know, my role is just to implement the, the statute and the rules, you know, as they're written. Um, but it, it certainly is, it's been fascinating, you know, to watch that uh, perception change, you know, because I, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, something I think that is important to mention about this um, and is very, you know, relevant to the conversation is, you know, even before last year, there wasn't even uh, a standalone cannabis bill that had even been, you know, introduced 
you know, in uh, the U.S. Congress. You know, and then just, you know, in just last week, we had uh, the MORE Act, you know, which would reschedule and decriminalize, you know, uh, cannabis and, you know, look to quell some of those, you know, some of those social justice components uh, past the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, I think that, you know, stuff like that is, it's, it's fascinating to watch. Um, and it, it's fairly ex- exciting to be a part. We want to thank you for your time today, Owen, and I'm really glad that we could have you on and, and chat with us further about this exciting opportunity that you're a part of and, and wishing you well, you know, throughout the duration of the holiday season and onwards into 2021. Steve and Emma, I truly appreciate the opportunity. It's been great to talk to you. You know, love what you do with the podcast and happy to be an alumni of U of I. Go Hawks. You'll have a good holiday season as well. That's it for this week's episode of From the Front Row. Big thanks to our guest, Owen Parker, for coming on today. This episode was hosted and written by Emma Metter and Steve Sanye. This episode was edited and produced by Steve Sanye. You can find more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Keep on keeping on out there.